Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go, and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish, and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays away, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath, and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about one hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Good morning, Gateway. It's good to be with you this morning for the sixth in a seven-part series on the great themes of the book of Revelation. As you may have gathered this morning, this theme is on judgment. And I'd like to thank Dave for inviting me to lead our look into what the book of Revelation says about God's future judgment. Because I believe that even a superficial look through this book 
says so much about judgment and, and how it will reveal to us that there, just as there are uh, two sides to every coin and uh, two sides to most arguments, there are also two sides to God's final judgment. And I would hope that after we've taken a look this morning, we'll see how God's judgment can be and should be feared by all those who are not prepared for it. But it should also be something that could be looked forward to by those who have been prepared for judgment through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that you are one of those. And if you're not uh, someone who can look forward to God's judgment without fear, I pray that you'll become one this morning. Because we really do not need to fear as Christians God's judgment to come. Before the earlier service, uh, a dear old saint uh, spoke with me in the back and she said, uh, are you preaching uh, like Dave preaches the book of Revelation this morning? And I think David's done a wonderful job, by the way. Um, I, I've only been able to be here a couple of times because I preach at different churches filling in wherever needed. And uh, the Sundays I couldn't be here, I've been online and watching the messages. And I have been absolutely uh, encouraged by David's messages. I, I, th I think he's done a wonderful... Can I get, give you a chance to give your thanks to him? He's, I think he's done a lot of work and he's done a lot of great encouragement. And that first sermon, the introduction on the book of Revelation was the best I've ever heard. I, I mean, I've paid a lot of money for schooling and I never heard any better introduction to the book of Revelation than that. And I, I told David so. I was very impressed. He's at Taze Valley this morning uh, presenting this material also. But um, anyhow, I, <clears throat> I was asked by this lady if I was going to preach the book of Revelation like David did. And I said, well, I sure hope so. And she said, he preached last Sunday, scared me to death said, I had nightmares at night. I thought the devil was in my bedroom. And, uh, <clears throat> but I would really hope that no Christian would go away with that kind of a look. The book of Revelation was written to Christians under first and second century persecution to encourage them, not to, not to put the fear of God into them, but to encourage them to hang on because in the end, who wins? We win. We, it's supposed to be a, a delightful thing for Christians, not something. Now, now, if you're not prepared and you're not a Christian, I can see how it would be a very terrifying revelation. It should be some Judgment should be something you should really be thinking about. But for the Christian, no, no. Judgment is a day of victory and a day of vindication. We'll, we'll see that as we go through. But what I do want us to acknowledge right up front is that if there is any theme that can be clearly seen in the book of Revelation. That's our series, the great themes in the book of Revelation. If there's any theme that can be clearly seen in the book of Revelation, it's that judgment is certain. Amen? I mean, you've got to see that in the book of Revelation. David's been reminding us throughout this whole series how there are all kinds of uh, things in the book of Revelation uh, that Christians disagree about. In fact, I've heard in some of the life groups there's been some quite uh, uh, energetic uh, disagreements uh, within the life groups when it comes to interpreting the book of Revelation. There's a lot of things in there that, that Christians disagree about, which 
David says is okay because most of those things are what he calls non-essentials. And by that he means your salvation is not dependent upon which interpretation you believe in this matter. And so he says we, we can agree to disagree about some things. Amen? As long as we do it agreeably. Agreed? We, we can disagree about, we can agree. We, we'll disagree about some things as long as we do it agreeably. And uh, there, there's a lot of things that come up in particulars, uh, but in this superficial look, this 30,000 view from above that we're looking down on for the, the big themes in Revelation, one theme is just stands out among, others, among all the others, and if you take the book seriously, and that is that God's judgment is certainly coming. It's coming, and it can't be avoided. Now, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due him for what was done in the body, whether good or evil. And the part of the revelation that we're looking at this morning is the rejoicing in heaven that follows that judgment. It's Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to look at Revelation 20, 19 and 20. But in 19, John begins by saying, after this. And because we're jumping into the end of the book of Revelation, we need to ask ourselves, after what? He starts by saying, after this. And what this is after is the judgment of the wicked. The, the prostitute has, has now been judged. And the sinful city of Babylon has now been judged. And John says, after this judgment, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. This is right after the judgment. What reaction does heaven have to God's judgment? Hallelujah. The world has been judged for his judgments are true and just. He has judged that great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The smoke from her is the smoke from the incinerated prostitute. Look at her smoke. She's gone. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Why should we praise God for judgment? Because when judgment comes, ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. The witch is dead. The witch is dead. Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. Look at her smoke as it rises forever and ever into heaven. And before these two chapters that we're looking at this morning are through, all those, not just the prostitute, but all those who've rebelled against the Lord and made war 
against the Lord and against the Lord's people. All of them, the evil beast, you remember them? The beast that came out of the sea, the beast that came out of the earth, along with the mighty generals and their armies, the false prophet, even Satan himself, they'll all be cast into the lake of fire forever. Even the casual reader of the book of Revelation can be certain. Judgment is coming. No matter what your millennial interpretation. Always ends in judgment. My dad was absolutely premillennial. It was one of the few things that dad and I disagreed on. We had lots and lots of conversations about it, believe me, didn't we, Lynn? My wife would just sit there and roll her eyes and listen to, listen to it all over again. He never changed his mind. He never changed my mind. But dad... Uh, believed in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ that was yet to come. And I believe that we were living in a figurative 1,000-year reign of Christ right now upon the earth. We never came to an agreement on that issue. Um, Dad passed away last year at 92 years old. And um, uh, we had the same conversation right there in the hospital as, as he laid there. And he looked up at me and he said, do you really believe that when I close my eyes here, I'll open them and be there? And I said, absolutely, Dad. Now, Dad didn't say that because he was looking for some comfort. <laughs> Dad believed wholeheartedly, absolutely, adamantly that there was a lot of things to happen between when we leave here and when we finally get to our eternal home there. He, he believed in a full thousand years and a lot of happenings in, in between uh, those two. But, but to me, I, you know, it, it was comforting to me, it is comforting to me to think that when Dad closed his eyes here, he opened his eyes and he was there. To be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. That's what I believe, you know. And, that, and we went through some of the scriptures that we'd gone through hundreds of times before. And um, again, Dad wasn't looking for encouragement. His faith was solid. He just had a different millennial view than, than I had on things. And, and I said, Dad, Dad I, I believe you're going you're gonna to be there in, in just moments. You're, you're going to be there. And Dad, with a twinkle in his eye, he said, we'll see, won't we? He had no doubts. He had no doubts that he was right with the Lord. But he had plenty of doubts in my millennial view. And he knew he was right with the Lord. He was going to be fine with the Lord. And I returned by saying, Dad, you're going to find out before me. You're going to find out a little bit uh, before me. <clears throat> but here's the thing that I wanted to bring up in the midst of all this. Never, ever, not once was there any disagreement about the certainty of God's judgment in the end. Never. In the end, Jesus wins. You can't, have, you can't read the book of Revelation and not see that. In the end, no matter your millennial view, Jesus wins. And all those who follow him win with him. Amen? We win in the end no matter what your view. Now, for a time, as you read through the book of Revelation, 
for a time, it looks like it's curtains for Christians. <laughs> I mean, that's, Dave taught you about recapitulation. That in, in that uh, revolving story of vision after vision after vision, each vision, it looks like it's curtains for Christians. It's curtains for uh, Jesus and those who follow him. Uh, it looks like the dragon who's waged war in heaven and been cast to the earth with a third of the starry host. As you read through the visions in Revelation, it looks like a red dragon's going to win. And it's not the St. Albans red dragon. It's the Satan red dragon. And he stands, if you'll remember, before the woman about to give birth to devour the Christ child as soon as he's born. What chance does a newborn have against a threatening dragon. I mean, it looks like it's curtains for Christ and his Christian until the child is born and he's caught up to God and to his throne in heaven. So the dragon turns his rage upon that defenseless woman who's just given birth. And it looks like she's going to be devoured by the dragon until the woman is given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly away from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she could be nourished and regain her strength. That relentless servant, uh, serpent uh, looks like he's going to sweep away the woman with a torrent of flood that comes out of his mouth. And just as the water is about to engulf the woman in the wilderness, the earth comes to her aid, opens up, and swallows the flood that has spewed out of the serpent's mouth. That dragon now furious, he goes out to make war against all of the woman's offspring. He calls up an evil beast from out of the sea, ferocious and horned. He calls up an evil beast out of the land. They're going to devour and, and, and gobble up all the saints as they make war on them. It looks like the saints are coming to an end. It looks like the devil and his minions are going to win. Right up until the end. <laughs> it looks like the white witch will win. And Peter and Edmund and Susie and Lucy and all Narnia will be always winter and never Christmas ever again. How many remember the Narnia of Chronicles of Narnia story? It looks like it's curtains. It's curtains for those little kids. It looks like the little hobbits and Gandalf the Grey will be stomped into the ground by Saruman's evil orcs. And pure evil will reign forever upon Middle Earth. How many of you know the story of the Lord of the Rings? It just looks like it's curtains for all them little hobbits right up to the end. Or for those of us who are a bit older, it looks like Injun Joe is going to catch up with Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn and do both of them in right to the very end, doesn't it? That's the book of Revelation. It looks like in each vision, it looks like it's curtains for the Christians all over again, right up until the end. But no, in the end, in each vision, Jesus wins, and God's final judgment is ushered in. Christians who have steadfastly endured to the end experience not only victory in judgment, their side wins, but Christians experience vindication and vengeance over their enemies. Because finally, 
finally, all the prayers of all those souls under the altar that John heard way back in chapter 6 of Revelation, all those souls who had been slain upon the earth for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They'd been crying out all this time with a loud voice, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Finally, their prayers are answered when Jesus wins and God's judgment is ushered in. Judgment Day is a day that can be and should be feared by everyone who has ever opposed Christ or has ever opposed his Christians. Judgment Day should bring terror to them. But Judgment Day is a day that can be looked forward to by all of Christ's marginalized and persecuted Christians. Now, we forget sometimes that this is part of the gospel, that Christ has always promised forgiveness and life eternal for those who are his, but he has also always promised vengeance and retribution for those who would dare to touch his anointed. He calls us the apple of his eye. And that's why the Bible says to those who are his, beloved, never avenge yourselves. We should never do that. Why? Because we're just too good and loving and we turn the other cheek and uh, we go the extra mile and we give the shirt off the back just because that's the thing Christians are supposed to do. No, that's sloppy agape. That, that doesn't tell the whole story of the gospel. The Bible says, Beloved, you Christians, don't avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's what John sees happening in this part of the revelation we're looking at this morning. John says, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. God had always promised vengeance was coming. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. For too long the world has thumbed its nose at God and said, you will not tell me what to do. And now the time has come for God to keep his word. So John sees on that white horse one sitting called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he comes to do what he has always said he would come to do. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the Word of God. The very Word that our world has spit upon. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes 
a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had the mark of the beast and those who had done the signs by which he deceived them and worshipped the image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by that sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Not the kind of thing you want to think about just before lunch, is it? but it's something this world better think about because this day is coming. God will not have his word thumbed at forever. Several years ago, I hate to tell stories like this because it shows my age, but several years ago, Johnny Carson... If you don't know who Johnny Carson is, you have to ask your mom or dad or grandma or grandpa. But Johnny Carson had uh, Billy Graham as a guest on his Tonight Show. And at one point in the conversation, Johnny said, you know what, Billy? I bet if Jesus ever came back to earth, I bet we'd do him in again. And Billy leaned in and he said, Johnny... In the Bible, Jesus did predict that he would come back to this earth again. But the first time he came in love, the next time he comes in power and no one will do him in. And Johnny Carson was so stunned into silence the Tonight Show had to go to commercial. Folks, this day's coming. You cannot read the book of Revelation even superficially and not come to the conclusion, no matter what your millennial view. And that's part of John's revelation that we're looking at this morning. 
how John says in Revelation 20, he says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. A literal thousand years in some time to come, some people believe. And if you're one of them, you have my respect. I got to tell you, you absolutely have my respect. That's what my dad believed. And there is nobody I've ever respected more upon this earth than my dad. And I've often wondered if I had been raised in a Baptist church up in Clay County like he was, if I'd been educated almost entirely through Christian radio, almost all of which was premillennial like he was, I wonder if I also might not believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ yet to come like my dad did too. It could be just because he was raised and the way I was raised because I, I wasn't raised like that. I was raised entirely in the church of Christ. I'm not saying it's better. I'm not saying it's worse. I'm just saying it was different. I was raised in the church of Christ. I was raised in this church of Christ, the Gateway Church of Christ, throughout my entire childhood. This is, I mean, if I'm not what you like, you got no one to blame but yourselves because I am a product of this congregation. And, and that was my dad's doing, by the way. That was dad's choice to have his family raised inside this church. And I thank him for it. My goodness, what a wonderful childhood raising that I had in this church. But I got to tell you, I can't remember ever, not one time, ever hearing a single premillennial sermon in this church. I can't ever remember, not one. And I mean, we were, we were church folk. Um, when we came Sunday morning, we came Sunday night, we came Wednesday night, I mowed the grass through the week. I mean, we were here more than we were not here. And I, I'm telling you, I don't remember a single premillennial sermon ever preached. I do remember one uh, men's fellowship meeting. We used to have men's fellowships every uh, one, one, one time a month. And one men's fellowship meeting, we had a political uh, uh, candidate uh, lead the devotion down in the come join us room. And uh, he showed us on the chalkboard how you could spell out the name Henry Kissinger and all those letters added up somehow to 666. You know, I, I still remember seeing that in the chalkboard and I thought, what? You know, what's he talking about? I, I don't understand this. That's as close as to anything premillennial I ever saw um, uh, taught in this church. And, and beyond this church, I went to uh, Church of Christ Bible Colleges and seminaries. I went to Cincinnati Bible College and Kentucky Christian College and went back to Cincinnati Christian Seminary and they kicked me out again. I went to Kentucky Christian and got my master's degree there instead. And, uh, but these were, these were all millennial schools. We, we, they taught us the premillennial position, but they, they taught us the arguments against the premillennial position. They really didn't teach us for the position. They were all millennial in view and, and that's all that I knew. And uh, I just... I truly wonder if that isn't got a lot to do with the way I interpret the book of Revelation now. I, I interpret it figuratively. I, the 1,000 years to me are a figurative 
number, just like all the other figurative images in the book of Revelation. It makes sense to me, anyhow, that this thousand years is a, is a figurative number as well. Uh, a thousand years meaning a long, long time. I mean, how long is a thousand years? I mean, that's a long time to me. It's longer than I, I can imagine. And uh, as far back as I, I can remember, I was always taught that Christ was in charge of the world right now. I mean, we were taught as youngsters to sing the song, he's got the whole world in his hands. And that wasn't he's got the whole world in his hands sometime in the future for a thousand years. He's got the whole world in his hands right now. Amen? Don't we believe that? And I couldn't understand why, why are we waiting for a time when, he, when the devil's bound and he has the whole world. I mean, it seems like he seems like he's got the whole world in his hands now, right now. And, of course, the argument would be maybe, yeah, but Satan's not bound uh, right now. He's like a ferocious lion prowling around looking for someone to devour, the apostle Peter says. And I think that's true. I think uh, Satan is alive and well on planet Earth, but not like Hal Lindsey says. I mean, Hal Lindsey give you nightmares if you read that. You're a Christian, you know, that Satan is at your bedpost at nighttime. You got to watch out for him. And I, I don't think that's true at all. I think for the Christian, Satan's, Satan's bound right now. I had a Greek professor back at Kentucky Christian. He explained it this way. He said, Satan's like a big ferocious pit bull on a, on a long chain. He, he's been chained by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you walk into his circumference and you're his meat. You need to stay out of them places. You know, uh, but you live the Christian life. You, you withdraw from the darkness and live in the light. And, and Christ is reigning over your life. You're, you're protecting yourself from, from Satan's, Satan's power. That's why we, we encourage our, our loved ones to stay out of certain, certain places. Uh, can remember uh, when our daughter graduated uh, high school, her and her friends wanted to go to uh, Mexico. That was Cancun, Acapulco, uh, Tijuana, I don't know, someplace in Mexico, and basically party. And Lynn and I thought, that's a bad idea, man. That sounds like you're walking into Satan's circumference. I mean, I, I didn't think it was a good idea. And we fought that her whole senior year. Jenny, our daughter's name's Jenny. We just don't think that's a good idea. All of them friends are doing it. It's a once-in-a-lifetime trip. We'll be good. It'll be okay, yada, yada, yada. And unfortunately, Lynn and I got wore down, and we gave in, and she went on the trip with her friends the first night, the first night in Mexico, wherever that was. She calls us collect from Mexico. We get a call. It's about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning around here. We get this collect call from Mexico, and of course, we're not going to turn down the collect call from Mexico when our daughter has just gone there. So we answered that call. It cost us $60. But uh, regardless, uh, she was just beside herself down there, and she said she was crying. Um, she was back in her hotel room, and she said, Dad, it's so scary down here. It's bad. She said, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm, it's not safe. There's no one to call. I don't know what to do. I should never come. And, of course, your mom, her mom and I would just couldn't get down there. We couldn't be there. What, you know, what, what do I do? And I said, Jenny, you're in your room, yeah? You're by yourself, yeah? I said, lock the doors, lock the windows, take your chair, block off the doors. Uh, you know, she said, I've got a roommate that's out partying, and they won't be able to get in. I said, she can she got knock on the door. I said, you make sure there's nobody worth her when she knocks on the door, but you stay locked in for the night. Don't you go out. And I said, wait till 
it's, it's good in daylight in the morning, about 9 or 10 o'clock when everybody else is sleeping off the night. You might find someone to safely go with you down to the beaches or, or whatnot. But uh, she, Jenny came back, and, and, and actually it wasn't very long ago that my daughter's now 40-something. She's got a 12-year-old daughter of her own, a couple little boys. And she said to me just not very long ago, she said, Dad, I cannot believe you and Mom let me go down there. I wanted to smack her, man. We didn't want you to go down there. We did everything we could to talk you out. Of, why did we do that? Because the devil was down there. He's prowling around like a roaring lion down there. I mean, he's been chained. Christians have been given a lot of protection from him. But if you want to walk away from your protection and walk into his lunch line, I mean, you'll be his meat. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about because you have daughters or son-in-laws or grandkids. They're still in the devil's jaws. It's hard to get out of there once you get in. It kind of reminds me a little bit about the... Uh, the old vaudeville joke where the man comes in holding his arm and says, Doctor, doctor, I broke my arm in three different places. What do I do? And the doctor says, stay out of them places. That's what Christians are told to do. Of course, Satan's alive and well on planet Earth, but he's been bound with a chain. Christ has risen from the dead. Victory has been assured. The devil's been defeated. Stay out of them parts. There's much safer places in which to live. Well, the Bible says in Revelation 20, that long period of time, that thousand years of time, the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, they'd not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They come to life. They reign with Christ for a thousand years. And, of course, the question come up, Where's that in your all-millennial theory? Where are these saints of God reigning with Christ? They've been faithful, Christ. And not only is Christ reigning, they're supposed to be reigning too. Where are the Christians reigning now? Well, the next verse says, the rest of the dead does not come to life until the thousand years are ended. This is the first resurrection. And I ask, why can't the first resurrection be the resurrection that all Christians experience in their Christian baptisms. We've all experienced resurrection. Everyone that's been baptized into Christ, we've been buried with Christ in Christian baptism, and we've been risen to walk in what? New life. We've experienced resurrection. Why can't that be the resurrection that all Christians experience? I mean, that would make it such a blessed experience, Christian baptism. And that's exactly what the next verse says. Oh, blessed and holy is the one who shares in that first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him again for that thousand years, for that long, long period of time. They'll be serving and reigning with Christ. They'll be serving as a priesthood of all believers. Isn't that what Peter says we are? We are all a priesthood of believers where you pray for me and I pray for you and together we pray for the whole world to find Jesus Christ. We pray for our one out there that they will find Christ before this terrible day of judgment comes. 
we want them to be spared from that second death. There's two deaths to be experienced, the Bible says. Someone has tried to abbreviate it. They say it this way, born once, die twice. You ever heard that phrase? Born once, die. if you're born once physically, and that's all, then you'll die twice. You'll die physically, but you're also going to experience the second death. However, if you're born twice, you only die once. You're born physically, and then you're born in the new birth spiritually into Christ. Then you only experience the physical death of this world. You don't experience the second death. Over you, the second death, the eternal separation from God, has no power. Now, it's still coming. It's just not coming for you. John saw that second death coming, and he says this. He says, when the thousand years are ended, when the long period of time is over, Satan will be released from his prison. And Jesus will say in the Gospels, in the end, things will get worse and worse. It will seem like Satan's chain has been loosed. He's getting out further and further. Do you not see Satan getting out further and further in our world today? And he'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth so the whole world will be deceived. Gog and Magog. Don't let that throw you. Gog and Magog are a name, old Hebrew names in the book of Ezekiel for enemy nations of God. Gog and Magog. And you'll hear a lot of people say it's Russia, it's China, it's Iraq, it's Iran, it's yada, yada, yada. No, it's Gog and Magog. It's, it's all nations all nations that are enemies of God. Any, any people that are th trying to thwart uh, God, they'll gather for battle and their number will be like the sand of the sea. They will have the numbers and they will seem to have the power and they march up over the broad plain of the earth. They surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city but fire comes down out of heaven and consumes them. They're gone. There's the battle of Armageddon. You, you hear about this battle, you know, how it's going to play out. It's over like that. It looks like they're going to win. It looks like they're going to win. It looks like they're going to win. Fire comes down, boom, they're gone. What is it the psalmist says? Psalm 2, one of my favorite psalms. He says, why do the nations rage? Why do peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Why are nations taking counsel against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed? Why, why are they taking counsel against all this? Let us burst their bonds apart, they say, and cast away their cords from us. We don't want this. We aren't going to be bound by this book, what this says, and what's God's reaction? He who sits in the heavens laughs. Laughs. You think you can be unfettered from your creation and the order in which I designed creation to be lived? The Lord laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision and then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. 
devil, John says in Revelation, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. That is the just wrath of God that is coming. And folks, there's only one way to escape that wrath. That's the last piece of John's revelation we look at this morning, how John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence the earth and the sky fled away. No place was found for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne. Books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades, that's the place where the dead go. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they'd done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death will be no more. There'll be no need for a place of death anymore. No one will die anymore. This is the second death. This is the death of death the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, no exceptions. That includes a lot of my kin. And friends, and it may include some folks who are here this morning, that's why old-timers used to close this kind of a sermon by singing a song saying, Is your name written there on the page wide and fair in the book of God's kingdom? Is your name written there? It's the most important question you'll ever ask because no matter your millennial view, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life escape God's judgment. Now we're going to sing a song in just a minute after we pray and there'll be some folks standing on either side of the stage to talk to anyone who wants to make certain their names are written there because that's a matter that can be taken care of this morning. But before we pray, I want to leave with one last thought. After hearing what John says he saw of God's coming judgment, I want us to think about amateur meteorologists who have this little saying. I don't know who came up with it. I'm sure you know it. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning. Sailors take warning. The same atmospheric phenomenon means two different things to two different sets of people. And folks, God's coming judgment means two different things for two different sets of people. For those folks outside of Christ, for those who've opposed Christ, it's a day to be feared. But for those who've accepted Christ, trusted Christ, followed Christ, 
given their lives to Christ, endured for Christ, it's a day that can be looked forward to because of the victory and the vindication that follows. Let's pray that someone will begin trusting Jesus and begin looking forward to that day with us this morning. Could we stand together as we pray? Holy Father, just and true, just and true. Thank you in your grace and mercy for warning us of that day to come. For telling us that it truly is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But thank you for Jesus who took upon himself our sins and suffered your wrath we deserved. We pray that someone this morning will turn from their sin and turn to him join us in no longer fearing the day to come but looking forward to it that's our prayer it's in Jesus name we pray it God's people said